Welcome again to Morning Devotions. I'm Pastor Summerall, the pastor of the Cathedral of Praise. Now, one of you is asking me, sent me a text, Pastor, how long will you continue to do Morning Devotions? Well, until we are out <laughs> of lockdown. I'm going to walk this journey through with you every day till we get to the end of it. Now, for most of you, you're fine and you're wonderful. And this is just a great time of education for you and a great time of, of learning. But for some of you, especially for some of our seniors and some of the young people, you've really been afraid in this. And every day I come into your home and just read you the Word of God. And it's amazing how just learning the Bible breaks fear off of your life. So we're going to keep doing this for a while. So let's start with one of the young people sharing with us Psalms chapter 91. Psalms 91. Whoever rests in the shadow of the Most High God will be kept safe by the Mighty One. I will say about the Lord, He is my place of safety. He is like a fort to me. He is my God. I trust in Him. He will certainly save you from hidden traps and from deadly sicknesses. He will cover you with His wings. Under the feathers of His wings, you will find safety. He is faithful. He will keep you safe like a shield or a tower. You won't have to be afraid of the terrors that come during the night. You won't have to fear the arrows that come at you during the day. You won't have to be afraid of the sickness that attacks in the darkness. You won't have to fear the plague that destroys at noon. A thousand may fall dead at your side, ten thousand may fall near your right hand, but no harm will come to you. You'll see the, with your own eyes how God punishes sinful people. Suppose you say, the Lord is the one who keeps me safe. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. Then no harm will come to you. No terrible plague will come near your tent. The Lord will command His angels to take good care of you. They will lift you up in their hands. Then you won't trip over a stone. You will walk on lions and cobras. You will crush mighty lions and poisonous snakes. The Lord says, I will save the one who loves me. I will keep him safe because he trusts in me. He will call out to me and I will answer him. I will be with him in times of trouble. I will save him and honor him. I will give him a long and full life. I will save him. As we go to prayer today, I want us to pray for families. Pressure does one of two things. Either it drives you closer together or it breaks you apart. For most of you, your family has grown closer than you have ever been before. For some of you, this has been difficult with the family. I want to pray for you today, for your families to be strong in this, for tempers to be calmed down, I want us to pray for just a beautiful outpouring of love, for God just to pour his love upon your family. Understanding hearts. Everybody in the family has been through a lot in this time. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Whatever member of the family we look at, Lord, it's been pressure. Moms and dads out trying to get transportation to go to work. All these tests that they have to go through. The constant pressure and the fear that seems to permeate from every corner. Young people staying at home, Lord, feeling cooped up and irritable. Seniors who are feeling cooped up and irritable. Father, there's pressure. Every member of the family is going through pressure. 
Father, I ask in Jesus' name, let there be understanding hearts as a beautiful gift of grace given to every parent, given to every Lolo and Lola, given to every young person, given to every child. Let there be understanding hearts. And Father, if there was ever a time that we needed patience, it's now. Father, with the young people, <laughs> patience is something that usually grows, but Lord, right now they just need a work of grace in their heart. Patience, patience with their parents, patience with their little brothers and sisters, <laughs> patience with their grandparents. Lord, there's so much frustration. Father, understanding hearts and a beautiful outpouring of love. Lord, just pour your love into the hearts of your sons and daughters. Pour your love into all of our hearts, Father. Let us abound in love like you do. Let us just be so full of love, Lord. Let us be, have that same love, that same agape love that causes us to want to serve and lay down our lives, to work hard to take care of each other. Let that love just wash away the frustration. Let that love wash away the irritations that have come. And Father, let there be forgiveness flowing to every family. Father, everybody has said things in this time that they wish they hadn't said, and words are hard to forget. But let there be forgiveness flow in the families. Let there be a pulling together now, not a pulling apart. Let there be a pulling together as the family pulls through this and ends this stronger than when it began. I thank you for it, Father. Lord, we lift you the frontliners again today. Lord, again, I'm asking you for miracles. The greatest encouragement I can think of, Father, is what you did for the priests. You let all those lepers come and show themselves. And those priests saw a testimony of the reality of Jesus. With all the death and all the suffering that the doctors and nurses are seeing, let them begin to see miracles, Father. Let them begin to see wonders, things that make them wonder. <laughs> oh, let them begin to wonder. Let them begin to see you do things in order that they can't explain, that science cannot comprehend. And let them begin to recognize the goodness of God, that in the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of all of this pain, that you are God and that you walk among and you are the life giver. Let all those frontliners begin to see the life of God flowing and healings and miracles begin to flow. And Father, then bring them to a place of repentance and salvation. In Jesus' name. Lord, I lift you all of our businessmen and businesswomen. From the smallest business selling cupcakes and lumpia. Father, to the big, big businesses. We need the favor of God. Let the favor of God flow to your people. Decree favor over your people, Father that the world will see the reality of God, that they will see your hand of blessing upon our lives. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some time in worship.
Sister Bev will be with us in just a minute for Isaiah, and I know you are enjoying Sister Bev and Isaiah. That might be her favorite book, though sometimes there's other ones that really get her attention, but she loves the book of Isaiah. And this is something she really wanted to do. I've asked her to do morning devotions and help out with some of the other things. She says, no, 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 but when it came to Isaiah. So you enjoy Sister Bev and Isaiah. But right now, let's turn to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. He said, do, do bear with me. Now, he's almost speaking a little facetiously there. He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you. For or because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, there's so much beauty in that. He tells the church that he said, now listen, I want you to be a pure virgin presented to Christ. I, I don't want any adultery to be in this relationship. I don't want you sleeping around with other people. Now, he's not talking about physical adultery there. He's talking about spiritual adultery, which is idolatry. He said, I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ. And I don't want you out messing around with idols, demonic idols and things. He said, remember, all through the Old Testament, idolatry was considered adultery. God called idolatry adultery. And Paul here is saying, in this city full of, of, of the worship of demons, he said, I, I want you to be a pure virgin to Christ. I, I don't want any of this, this spiritual immorality taking place among you. But back up and see what else he says. Notice the words, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a real man of God. A real man, a real woman of God feels a divine jealousy for the, for the people of God. Now, you know, sometimes people say, you know, pastors need to stop thinking that they own the sheep. No, as pastors, we don't think we own the sheep. But there is a jealousy within us for the people of God. And it's a divine jealousy. Ah, it's not a carnal jealousy. It's a divine jealousy. People that you have led to Christ, people that you have taught and developed, and you've, you've betrothed them to Jesus. There is a divine jealousy that a, a real man of God. Now, now these you know event makers know, know that they don't even know who the people are. They, they don't even know the people. But when you know people and you've put your life into people, bringing them to Jesus, there is a divine jealousy that a pastor feels. Not a carnal jealousy, not a controlling thing, but a divine jealousy. He said, for I am afraid. A fear Paul had. Now, the idea of fear in Paul is almost antithetical terms. But Paul said, this is a fear that I have. This is, this is something that keeps me awake at night. I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He said, now, your devotion to Christ... He should, should be twofold. It should be sincere and it should be pure. He said, now, I, I don't want your thoughts led astray from that. He said, I, I, don't, I don't want you out listening to people that are going to pull your hearts away from a sincere 
and pure devotion to Christ. He said, for, here's his because, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, he said, you put up with it. He said, you put up with this ready, readily enough. Now notice three things there. Another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And he said, you tolerate it. Now, Paul said, you know, I, I'm amazed at how Christians will, will listen to things that aren't right. He said, you'll listen to a gospel that's a very different gospel. You know, there are people that preach the gospel today, and they say it's the gospel. But their definition of the gospel is, Jesus loves you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment of your sins. Jesus rose again to give you a new life. That's the gospel. The gospel is not God loves you. That, that's a motivation behind the gospel, but that's not the gospel. Everybody here, if you believe that Jesus loves you, come to the altar. Now you're saved. No, you're not saved. Not until you repent of your sins. But Paul said, now listen, people will come along and they'll lead you astray. He said, and I'm jealous of this. He said, this, this really bugs me. The emotion that I feel is jealousy because I presented you as a pure virgin to Christ and now these people come along and they lead your minds astray to another Jesus, to a different spirit, and to a different gospel. And he said, you put up with it. He said, I'm amazed. You put up with it. You, you listen to whatever somebody wants to, to, to put before you. Now, you've often heard me say, brothers and sisters, we smell our food. Is that correct? Like, if, if you see food that you have never seen before, you don't just grab it and eat it, but you smell it first. It's a natural instinct in us. We always smell our food to make sure the food is good. And if it smells a little off, we don't eat it. If you're in a restaurant and there's sushi out on a, a buffet, though we don't have buffets anymore since COVID-19, and the sushi looks a little brown. You, you look at it and you, you get a piece on your chopsticks and you smell it and you go, ah, maybe not because you've had bad sushi before. That makes for a long night and a bad morning. You smell your food. You check out your food before you eat it. Well, Paul said, listen, you don't check out your food, before, your spiritual food before you eat it. He said, you, you put up with it readily enough. Wow. He said, I consider that I am not least to these, <laughs> these super apostles. Oh my, how much Paul had, how much fun Paul had with these people. They, they said, Paul is just an apostle. We are the A-listers. We are the super apostles. We are better speakers than Paul. We are better dressers than Paul. We know how to dress for success. We have studied our articulation and our enunciation. He said, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. 
Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. He said, Paul was saying, do you want a really slick PowerPoint presentation that has been through three focus groups to make sure that there's no offensive words said? Or do you want truth? Oh. He said, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. He said, I, I, didn't, I didn't receive any offerings from you. He said, now, the, the super apostles, they, they charge you. He said, I didn't even receive an offering from you. I humbled myself so that you might be exalted. He said, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. <laughs> Amazing. Paul said, you know those churches of Macedonia, and Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea? They sent offerings to support me while I pioneered a church here in this super rich city. He said, and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. This is the only church Paul never accepted anything from. The only church Paul never accepted anything from. There's something that happened in those early days of pioneering that made Paul decide, I will never take a centavo from these people. Now, I've been to churches like that in my life. You don't need to know where, but I've been in, in churches where, where people looked down their nose at me and they didn't like how I was dressed and they didn't think I was a fancy enough person and, and you know... And then after I preached and the altar call and people got healed, oh, Pastor Sumrall, you're, you're, you're like a man, you're, you're like a, a university professor walking among us. We've never heard such a sermon. And when the pastor walked up and gave me the offering afterwards, I said, no, thank you. I said, you take that and stick it in the missions fund. See, sometimes when people look down their long noses at you, and this is what this church had done to Paul, you kind of make it a point you're never going to be able to say you gave me anything. You're never going to be able to say you did something for me. He said, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Acacia. Now, that is the province that Corinth is in. He said, you know what? I'm going to keep talking all across Acacia, all across this whole province, that I've never taken anything from you. And why? Because I do not love you? He said, God knows I do. But what I do, I will continue to do. And he said, now here's the point. To under, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. He said, you know what? Sometimes I just make up my mind. I'm not going to accept an offering. I'm not going to let you support me in any way. To pull the carpet from underneath these people. To say, well, just like Paul. Paul said, no, you're not just like me. No, 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 no. He said, I'm going to show these people how much you're not like me. I'm not even going to receive an offering. You're peddling the word of God for profit. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Wow. So these um, super apostles... This is how Paul dealt with the super apostles, the A-listers. He said, they charge you for everything. They tell you ahead of time how much it's going to cost. He said, not me. These guys are false apostles, deceitful work, and disguising themselves. 
as apostles of Christ. <laughs> he said, now, let me take off the disguise. And, and this is basically what Paul is teaching here. You remove the mask with money. You remove the mask with money. No, I don't want anything. Nope, I'm just glad to come and be a blessing. I'm just glad to come and serve. <laughs> and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguised. I notice disguise, disguise, disguise. We have the same word used three times. So Paul is really trying to make a point. And he said, it's no wonder. And no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. All right, so you know, judgment will come. But he said it will be their end. But now notice, his servants as servants of righteousness. So Satan has servants. Now, you know, there was a day when I was a young baby Christian. I knew that there were demons, but I didn't think that there were very many demon-possessed people around. You know what? I think there's a lot more demon-possessed people around us than we know. And there was a time in my life I, didn't, I knew there were false prophets, but I thought there weren't very many false prophets. But you know what? The longer I serve God, the more I look around. There's a lot more false prophets than you and I think. And they're well disguised. They're disguised as a servant of righteousness. I often tell pastors that a fake preacher, a false prophet, a false preacher, probably looks like a better pastor than a real one. What? Yeah, because they're working carefully on the disguise. It's like, pastors, we're just doing what comes naturally from our hearts. We're just being who we are. But these guys are working really hard on the disguise. And because they're working very hard on the disguise, they practice every move. They practice every word. These guys are often, honestly, if you look at them from just an intellectual viewpoint, they look like better pastors than real pastors because they're concerned about their disguise. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
Welcome back to the book of Isaiah, one of my favorite books, 66 chapters, of which we see the first 39 relating to the Old Testament books, and then the next chapters 40 through 66 relating to the New Testament books, a story of redemption, a story of the history, the poetry, Isaiah, one of my favorite poets of the Old Testament, an amazing intellect, an amazing writer. I love the lofty writing style of Isaiah. I love how he'll be prophesying against the nations and suddenly just bursting into praise to God Most High. It's an amazing book. And we are right in the middle of a tour of nations where Isaiah is going around all the nations to the east, to the north, to the south, and then over to the southwest, where over to the continent of Africa. And today we are back over to the east of Israel because chapter 21, where we pick up today, is an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. We are talking about Babylon. And Babylon suddenly Okay, who was the big monster nation of that time? You know it by now, right? Assyria. Assyria, which was northeast from Israel and from Judah and Jerusalem. Assyria was saber-rattling. It was a powerful nation that people looked at with fear, sometimes trying to make alliances with it, and sometimes serving Assyria and bringing tribute trying to make alliances with other nations against it, all kinds of things, strategies, rather than trusting in the Lord God. But Babylon at one point had just decided suddenly to rise up against Assyria and it would be defeated. So that is basically what we're going to be reading in chapter 21. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays, and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Medea. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes. Oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Of my threshold and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. 
You remember in the old times, in the Old Testament, all these nations had their gods. And everybody thought, yes, this is the God of this nation, but this is the God of this nation. And this is the God of the wilderness, and this is the God of the sea, and this is the God of the rain, and this is the God. <laughs> so when one nation conquered another nation, they thought they're just proving that their God was the mighty one or something that they had conquered the gods of the other nation. Sometimes God would just rise up and say, eh, eh, hem. Only God is the true God, the God of heaven and earth, and all nations will bow before him. He is the all-powerful one. Now, in verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma, we have now gone to Edom, which again is east of Judah. One is calling to me from Seir, watchmen, what time of the night? Watchmen, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. That is the very shortest oracle in the book of Isaiah. That's it. Two verses and we're done with Edom. Verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia. Now the Assyrian threat is still the background of this oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dinanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year... According to the years of a hired worker, you notice not only is it a very specific prophecy again, but you notice that it often makes reference to as a hired worker will count this particular time frame because hired workers are just like, is it five o'clock yet? Can I go yet? Is it time to go home yet? And they're that way with contracts. Imagine a seaman. I've only got one week left and I get to go see my family. One week, seven days, six days, five days. And they know exactly when their contract is over. So within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Yes, never mind all these idols, images, gods of all the other nations. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Now in chapter 22, it says an oracle concerning the valley of vision. Now we're getting close to home because now we're back in Jerusalem. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, specifically Jerusalem within Judah. And right around Jerusalem are valleys like the Kidron Valley, most likely the place where Isaiah was being shown his visions. And by the way, come with us to Israel tour sometime. We are praying for a 2022 tour and you can see these things for yourself. Normally, when you think of Jerusalem, you think of Jerusalem as up on top because it's on a mountaintop and you have to go up to reach it. But surrounding Jerusalem are valleys and including the Kidron Valley where Isaiah was having his visions. 
So the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord of hosts has a day. This is another one of those, let's look at the future phrases. The Lord of hosts has a day, a day of tumult and trampling and terror. Now, tumult and trampling and terror, I realize in English, those three all start with T. But it's another example in Hebrew of Hebrew poetry, because in Hebrew, and I don't think I'm going to say this right, Mahuma, Mabusa, Mabuka. So these are three almost the same words, just slightly different um, variations on each word. It's a Hebrew poetry moment in Isaiah. In the valley, so tumult, trampling, and terror in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stands at the gates. He's taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, so they're in trouble, because a siege is coming against them. And what is following here in chapter 22, just these few verses, verses 8 to 11, it's one of the most important passages which is going on in this story of who do you trust? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting? And with such a clear prophetic warning, you would think that the people would say, oh, me, I'm trusting in God. I can see God's got this. He's the sovereign God. But look what it says. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. So where there are um, storehou storehouses of weapons around that's where you look to instead of looking to God. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. Well, that sounds logical, right? It sounds like good strategy. If they're going to be sieged, they better know about the water. But this is like king after king, person after person. It's happening. Remember, this is Ahaz, back in chapter 7, going out to the waters, contemplating, what should I do? And now here we have again, what are they doing, all these strategies? You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. So, okay, if we've got too many houses, let's take down this house and this house and use the bricks to fortify the wall because we're so desperate, we need to be protected. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. It seems so strategic, doesn't it? It seems so logical. It seems like, okay, if, this, if we've got a siege coming to against us, then these are the things we need to do. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Hmm. 
our help, where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who has laid out our days, laid out the days, the course of nations. Let's lift up our eyes to the Lord and never fail to look to him. And though these actions may be strategic and logical, and it, there's nothing saying that it was so wrong that they did that. There's nothing, it might be brilliant that they did that, but they did that without looking to God and saying, God, no matter what our hands can do, we look to you for our protection. We look to you, we trust in you and in you alone. So in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth, in other words, humiliation, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Now, starting in verse 15 until the end of this chapter, the most interesting story, ah, the story of Shebna. Shebna the steward, an official in the household, very important person, but it says, the Lord, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, so because it doesn't say Shebna, the son of, because that's what they will always say when you're talking about God's people, the Israelites, so instead of that, it just says to Shebna, so it's probably indicating a foreigner, not an Israelite. He might even be an Egyptian serving in the palace, managing the household. What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the heights and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you will die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office. You will be pulled down from your station. This is a beautiful story in chapter 22. It's a contrast. In chapter 22, we are actually going to see a contrast between Shebna and see what's important to him. And Eliakim, who was a servant of God, and what's important to him. We're going to see a contrast between these two people. But you know, a beautiful study for you to do, if you would like to, is a study between Shebna and Isaiah. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? This is the important thing in the book of Isaiah. Who do you trust? Shebna trusted in himself. Self-made man, I can do this, and I'm going to cut a memorial, a memorial rock. What would be his end? <laughs> the Lord would take Shebna and says, roll him up like a ball and swing round and round and round and round and throw him into a far land 
you know, there's a saying where my husband comes from originally in Alabama, lost as a ball in tall weeds, something like that. <laughs> the southern sayings always amuse me. But Shebna would be thrown away like a ball into a far land. God would just do it. Who do you trust? What will be your end? Who did Shebna trust? Himself. Who did Isaiah trust? He trusted in the Lord, the God, the maker of heaven and earth. Very different, very different outlook. In contrast, starting in verse 20, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So son of Hilkiah. You know, when we first started going to Israel, we had to fill out little immigration forms. And it would actually say, you don't have to do that anymore, by the way, because everything is so, you know, read in your computer, in your, from your passport. But in the first, in the early days, we'd have to fill out this form and it would say, you'd have to put your name, son of, yeah, there you go, still done in Israel. And it says that this one is God's servant. So God is going to put his, so he's going to remove this guy who trusted in himself and put his servant there. And I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. God is going to put his servant, someone who served him, in this very important position. Get rid of the guy who was so self-important and who lived for himself. I'm going to carve a memorial for myself in the rock, in the hills. Mm. God says, I know what to do with you. <laughs> You're going to be so insignificant. You're going to be lost as a ball in tall weeds. There, there you go. And instead, I'm going to give my servant Someone who, instead of seeking glory for himself, what does it say? He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Someone who's seeking his own glory. Someone who's seeking to father the people, to nourish them and raise them up and do good for them. Who do you want to be? <laughs> Which one do you want to be? You want to be Shebna? You want to be Eliakim? You want to serve God and have him say, yes, I will give you authority and I will give you a position because I know what's in your heart. You're going to serve me and you're going to serve the people. Or do you want to be like Shebna, who is just all full of himself? Now you will see Shebna and Eliakim in other passages in scripture, such as 2 Kings 18 and 19. And also We'll see them again in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, which are narrative or historical chapters. We'll see them. When you see how God exalts and God removes, which one do you think is more effective? Now, I'm going to ask you a question. 
you think it's more effective to rally in the streets or to pray? Hmm. You see, we want social justice. For one thing, we need to live social justice. We need to live what is right and treat people right around us. And secondly, what's more effective? To rally in the streets or to pray? God holds all authority. He exalts. He removes. Let's pray and let's trust in the Lord always in all things. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for our morning devotions. It is such a pleasure to get into the word, to study and see the ways of the Lord and to trust our ways to him. We'll see you tonight for our online evening service at 7 p.m.